Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mountshoop. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. Today on Going Deep, we welcome back some guests that we've appreciated here on Going Deep in the past, Tom Talavage and Eric Nauman, two engineers on the cutting edge of prevention of head injuries in contact sports. I mean, there's so much going on right now with, um, you know, there's always a lot going on with head injuries, but just recently the two high profile deaths of NFL players that then were proven to have CTE post-mortem. And it's just, it's been a while. And there have been a lot of changes in our lives and their lives and in the world since we talked to them. I'm sure anxious to talk to these guys because the last time we had Tom and Eric on was in May of 2018. And technology, it seems to me, is moving so, so fast. And Eric and Tom are at the tip of the spear when it comes to, uh, well, head injuries, CTE uh, equipment, and how to and how, learning how to deal with it, practice methods, and uh, I'm really interested in digging a bit deeper with them on where things are now, not just in their lives, but in this whole process of moving uh, towards solving what is. Tom and Eric have always told me a solvable problem. This uh, head injuries in football, there's some things that we'll probably never be able to solve. This is actually one that is solvable. And I really think that uh, Eric and Tom are kind of at the, as I said, the tip of the spear and leading that charge. So guys, welcome back to going deep and, uh, Maybe you could tell us, reintroduce yourself to our listeners and tell us just about, well, some dramatic changes in your life, because last time we talked, you all were at Purdue. That's correct. Thank you so much, John and Marsha. Yeah, so uh, I'm Tom Talavich. I am now the head of the Department of Biomedical Engineering at the University of Cincinnati. I have been here for about 18 months. Uh, So this is uh, really only my second semester coming up where I get to actually see people. Um, So after basically consulting for a year, I now get to teach and do research. One of the most exciting things and one of the real reasons that I was excited to take the opportunity to come here to UC was really the fact that they have a a very engaged athletic training and athletic healthcare team that has been working in the area of concussions and other prevention, injury prevention area uh, aspects for well over a decade. And so this is uh, an exciting opportunity, not only to continue my research that we've been doing, that Eric and I and all of our colleagues in our former neurotrauma group have been doing, 
um, toward reducing the risks of head injuries, the risks of repetitive impacts and, and other subsequent, you know, soft tissue injuries, whether they be in the knee, the shoulder, the leg, what have you. Um, but here to actually put it into practice and to have the opportunity to work with athletes, both, you know, historically we'd worked with high school athletes, but now we're also going to have access to college athletes. So, uh, this is a really exciting opportunity for us. This is my, actually my first day at university of Cincinnati. Um, I am the uh, Dane and Mary Louise Miller uh, professor of biomedical engineering here. And kind of like Tom said, the, the opportunity to work with work closely with athletics was huge for us. Um, there's also here a children's hospital, uh, medical school, uh, VA medical center, there's a whole host of, of groups for us to work with. And, and my, my whole thing has always been about preventing injury or repairing it, you know, when, when you can't prevent it. And so, you know, the, the opportunity to work so closely with clinicians and to work with an athletics program, you know, that is, that is engaged with the, with the larger university community is, is, it was just phenomenal. You know, that, that's a, that's such a, a great opportunity. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm blessed to be here and, and proud to be on the show. It's great to have you all. And I do hope Cincinnati is going to be a great spot for your work, for your families, for just for you as human beings. Um, now, can you each speak a little bit to just, you know, how it feels to to see these headlines recently about these two players, um, both successful NFL players, um, both people that their, their loved ones had noticed real changes in their behavior, both really tragic deaths. Um, one after he killed multiple people and then killed himself. And another, um, the cause of death was, was chronic alcohol use. And, um, and his family had noticed also just a lot of changes in his behavior and his ability to, to function. How does it feel for you too to see those headlines? That's a good question. Cause we've seen these headlines a lot, right? So that's, that's the, uh, sad side of all this is, you know, this, this has been going on for a while. And as John said, we feel like this is a very solvable problem. So from my perspective, I think frustrating is not the, quite the right word um, because the fix is, is very close. You know, it's, it's just, it just takes a little bit of will to, to make these problems, you know, just dramatically reduce. So, I, so frustrating is the only word I can come up with, but it's, it, it's not quite right. a feeling of somewhat helplessness because you know what the solution has to be. You know how to fix these problems. Now, in these particular cases, uh, you know, there's nothing we probably could have done, even if you'd gotten everybody to start moving 10 years ago. I don't think that solves the problem for either of these individuals. It, it's terribly agonizing to watch day after day, see people experiencing these consequences. And really, this even goes back to something that Eric and I have talked about. I don't know if we talked about it on the show when we were on three years or three and a half years ago or not, but 
we had a one of the times we went and we were interacting with the NCAA and, and Brian Hainline's group. There was a express discussion by folks at their data service, Dataless, actually out of Indianapolis, where they talked about how they were looking forward to uh, everybody getting over the hype of this whole head con- head injury and concussion issue so they could get back to working with real problems like hypertrophic cardiac myopathy, um, which is you know a tragic issue that affects uh, a handful of athletes a year. Whereas in this case, you know, whereas in the Philip Adams case, okay, this is a clear, obvious, there's violent behavior that's resulted from all the the brain damage that he's experienced. But I think the Vincent Jackson case is the more, in some sense, on an individual level, it's the tragic one for him and his family, but it's also tragic because he didn't die directly because of CTE. He experienced all these behavioral changes that led to life changes that ultimately led to his demise. And so everybody can kind of dismiss it though as well. A lot of athletes drink or a lot of athletes do get depressed when they stop playing. I know Dr. Hainline talked a lot about the whole issue of athletes leaving sports and having suicide, having higher rate of suicide, which is true. And it's an issue. Um, but when you had already in this additional factor of, of head injury and brain injury and brain damage, we have to be able to fix this. And given that can be done, it is just all the more frustrating that 10 years on from our, or 11 years on from our initial research publication, so to speak, we are still not seeing movement in the right direction. So it's, it's agonizing. Yeah. Thank you all for answering that. Cause I mean, it's, it really is from a gut level. It's really tragic that we human beings can't do better. Um, have you all seen the the movie Don't Look Up yet? The yeah, Don't yeah. Look Up. Yeah. It kind of r- reminds me of that. Like mm-hmm. there's clear science. We know what to do about it. And yet the human race just, it's like we're our own worst enemy. And we have this way of of denying and diffusing and destroying and all the things. And it seems so much like that. You know, thousands and thousands of players and their families have been impacted by by this. And you all are really asking for a paradigm shift away from focusing on concussion protocols and what to do after somebody gets a concussion and look at real concrete ways to prevent, to prevent the conditions that make people ripe for concussive incidents. That's one of the big shifts. I remember John and I were like, oh, wow, this is different. They're talking about all the little hits, all the little blows that make the brain just more conducive to damage, injury um, that that in after long enough will not be reversed, cannot be reversed. Well, um, go ahead, John. Well, Tom and Eric, you really helped me reshape my view of concussions as you talk about these micro concussions and we'll get into this, but ever since our first conversation, you know, I've gone from thinking of a concussion as just one big hit, one violent episode where a guy just gets plastered and we all see it and we're all working towards taking or or people, reasonable people can look at that and say, we need to try to take those hits out of the game. 
But since I've gotten to know you guys and your work, I think more of what uh, Al Gore talked about with uh, climate science, that there's this frog in this water and this water's getting hot and it's boiling. And well, we may never, the frog may never, it may never get so hot that the frog jumps out. And this is really what I thought about with Vincent Jackson, the wide receiver who ended up having a grade level two episode of CTE. You can't, so our listeners know, you can't officially diagnose somebody with CTE until you have an autopsy. But I just wondered if he was like that frog that was that water boiling. And you don't really realize with all the micro concussions. And so I wonder if you could talk about that some more for our listeners. You know, we all know what one violent hit and son of a gun, I got my bell rung looks like. But you guys really taught me about these micro concussions that are building up to this threshold of, holy moly, if we if we don't if we don't cool off, we're going to overflow. And so I was wondering if you could kind of take us through that a little bit. And then also, I'm interested in how your relationship at Cincinnati might be different from other places that you've been and speak specifically maybe with access you might have because Cincinnati is a pretty good football team. Our listeners need to know, you know, and uh, I I just, I I wonder what access you'll have. So if you could dig into those a bit, you want to deal with the first part there, Eric, and I can handle the second. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll do my best. We'll say, because, uh, um, one of the first things that we learned uh, early on was uh, that the damage that's happening, and, and sometimes they, they, I think the terminology that's evolved here is the subconcussive blows, but for a subconcussive kind of event, or, or the damage seems to affect not just the neurons, but say the, the support cells, the glial cells, and interestingly, the blood vessels. So you can damage the capillaries and the small vessels there. And in some cases that can actually be a little bit worse because now you're not providing nutrition to a whole region of of brain tissue. And it was really interesting for us because up until that point, I think we had even thought of, of damage to the brain being just neurons. Um, And then when you think you'd look at it a little bit more holistically, um, which is always a, a good idea. Uh, but you look at it more holistically and you realize, oh, actually all these different structures are taking damage. You know, the vasculature might, might actually heal in seven to 10 days, but the neurons don't and the glial cells remain upset for, you know, for two or three weeks. And you start to see all the different ways that you can, you can have damage. Uh, and then as you start to, we start to look at it more and more, this was probably in year seven or eight of our study, we found that that, that 50 G threshold seems to, seems to be there. And it's not a 50 G threshold for a single blow concussion. It's really a 50 G threshold for some type of, of damage that your body doesn't heal right away. You know, so, so what we were finding is as far as we could tell, 20, 30 G, yes, they, they cause changes, but the body can, I guess, in a sense, keep up with the damage. 
But once you start getting above that 50 G threshold, then you start to, to generate injuries that you can't just repair, you know, in real time, essentially. So we saw that in football players. Uh, we saw it in women's soccer. Um, we saw it in a few different types of, of measures that we were doing, vascular, uh, biochemical, all different kinds of things. So we feel pretty comfortable that that 50 G's is still a good threshold to stay under. And like we said before, that that's wonderful. That, that gives us actually a design criterion. And once we have a design criterion, we, we can, we can make those helmets. That is, if we still haven't had the opportunity to do that outside of the laboratory, you know, we've, we've designed the materials, designed all the components. We know how to do it. It's really now just a question of putting it together and, and, as we keep saying, it's not, it's not a hard engineering problem and it's not even that expensive of an of an engineering problem to be perfectly honest. It's just one of these things that, you know, uh, uh, I think Marsha talked about a paradigm shift. We need that paradigm shift to, to say yes, to actually have people believe that we can solve this problem. I think right now the, the powers that be are just trying to make it seem like the problem is so hard that you know, it's going to take us 20 more years to understand the brain, and then we can start solving the problem. And like, no, I'm pretty sure we can solve this now, and then learn more about the brain later. When we come back on Going Deep, more with Eric Nauman and Tom Talavage about prevention and head injuries in contact sports. Welcome back to Going Deep on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Our guests today are Tom Talavich and Eric Nauman, formerly of Purdue University and now at the University of Cincinnati. Last time we talked about these 50G hits and we talked about it being a pretty significant hit in the game of football, maybe like an isolation play, a fullback getting a running start on a linebacker. And a 50G hit is pretty significant. With uh, the helmet or the equipment that you're creating, could you take that 50G hit and kind of lower that damage to maybe like a 20 or 25G caliber that your your body can then keep up with it. Is exactly. that is that what you're saying? You know, right now I think uh let's see the I think the 90th percentile in terms of hits was right around 65 G's or something like that. Um if that does that sound about right, Tom? Yeah, because 95th is around 90. So that's yeah. about about 65, 70 G's. Yeah. So so the idea would be getting that. 95th percentile hit down below 50 so that the 50 G hit is now a 20 G, you know, just, just bring all of that down so that now you might get, you know, four or five hits a season that are above 50 G, but that's about it. And right now you're getting four or five hits at least that are well over a hundred. And so those are definitely causing that kind of damage that you, that you can't just repair on the fly. 
that that's that's really interesting. And you also can you talk a little bit about the cumulative effect of those 20, 25 G hits that you might have in practice? Because I, I think collaboration with coaches in your work is going to be one of the most important things that you have, because if coaches just continue to practice these isolation 50 G hits, 60 G hits, well, no science in the world can overcome (laughs) some degree of stupidity. Right. So, so from that perspective, John, at least what we've observed, and of course, you know, we've talked about this before, the big issue here is tracking the pathophysiology rather than just the symptoms. The, what we find is that is the, the players get hit over the course of the season and they accumulate those blows, you know, pretty much anything that exceeds 20 G, which honestly isn't a heck of a lot, seems to contribute at least a little bit to small scale structural alterations. So the, the, the connections that let your brain pass information around, which is what makes the whole neural network work, that gets damaged even from those little 20 G hits, or at least altered in some manner. Um, and, but it, does take a lot of those before you start to see, you know, what I would argue are notable, large-scale, statistically significant, quote unquote, changes in brain health. So that's a good thing. It takes a lot. Your, your brain's reasonably resilient. That's nice. Um, but when you start building up those larger hits, those 50G hits, those 60G hits, those 70G hits, you're starting to see changes in how your brain is using neurotransmitters. So, in other words, how frequently are the neurons? even bothering to fire or capable of firing? How successful are they at transmitting information from one location to another? Um, You see changes in the coupling. So how rapidly with the blood, so how rapidly does the body react to the demand of those neurons firing or attempting to fire in order to bring new nutrients, to bring new, you know, oxygens to keep those cells alive and healthy. Um, we see changes in how the brain networks, how is the information actually getting passed around, which I mean, makes sense. If we've got some small scale structural changes, you're having a problem keeping the neurons healthy and happy. It makes sense that everything starts routing via different pathways. We start using back roads rather than the main highways. Okay. I mean, that's really what goes on. Um, so those are, those are big issues because while they that's why you, that's and that's also partly why the symptoms are the wrong thing. You have to be looking at these underlying pathophysiologic changes. Amen. Where's the brain? Yeah, where's that tissue telling you I got a problem? I'm not happy as a, but I can still do my job. I need to know it at that point, not the I am no longer functioning stage. That doesn't do us any good. So tying to the issue of the coaches, you know, this is part of the reason we're so excited to be here at UC now is the fact that. You know, we've got athletic training and athletic healthcare. So, so when we were at Purdue, the main issue there is that the healthcare staff outside the athletic trainers are external consultants. So they're getting paid a flat fee for whatever they do. And so, you know, when you want to come in and engage with the athletes and do work and you want extra studies done, you're eating into how much money they're, they're getting a flat amount of money, but now you're using more resources, more, more, um, I don't know the right term here for it, but you know, more services. There we go. You know, you're using more services than they originally had budgeted for, so to speak. So they don't really like that. They aren't that engaged and that supportive of doing additional work. They'll let you do the additional work, but then you got to bring the money to the table. 
here at UC, what's exciting is that, you know, the, the healthcare staff, their medical research school faculty. So they are interested in these problems. They've been doing research on their own for over a decade. They may not have published a lot of it, but they've got this wonderful bank of knowledge about what works, what doesn't work. So an interesting fact here at UC is they've been doing, for example, some spectacular vision training, which fits with something Eric and I have seen before in our previous research, that if we had athletes who had training from like um, judo or other activities where you have to be aware of your surroundings, aware of what's happening, that those guys didn't seem to take big hits. Well, they've been doing this visual training, peripheral visual field training and thing. And they have this large training regimen they undergo. And of those athletes, they've had a very, very low rate of concussion over 10 years. And the one year that the coach said, I don't want you guys doing that. They reached that they went back up to the national average in terms of the number of diagnosed concussions over the course of the season. And then they went back to that training and they dropped back down to about a fifth of that rate. So fascinating. It's it's an exciting thing. So, you know, they have evidence, they have empirical data that say, hey, we can improve the situation because what's happening really, John? Well, those guys now are not getting hit for that 75G blind side hit because they're cognizant of what's happening around them. They see something in their periphery. They're reacting to it. They're not sitting ducks. So that night that actually those are really the 9520 G hits we would see in the right. high school yeah. kids. When so, blindsided, so to speak, that becomes a 60 or 70 G hit, greatly reducing the, the negative effect. So is this a little bit like, not a little bit, is this cross-training, you said, and specifically things like martial arts to train peripheral vision to avoid mega hits? These guys aren't doing the martial arts, but they're doing that peripheral vision training, which I think is something that you you deal with. I'm not familiar with martial arts training, but I have have had people who are say there is this whole situational awareness. What's going on around me so that when I'm in a judo fight, do I see the leg coming? Do I see what's going on? They have to be aware of the actions of those people around them. And I think we're seeing that this sort of being aware, just kind of being in the situation as an athlete, not so totally focused on getting that extra yard that I'm only looking straight ahead and I'm not paying any attention to what's going on around, but still being aware that, oh, there's another helmet coming in. I better react to that. And it's it's exciting. It's funny that you say that there was a, a Hall of Fame coach, a man named John Robinson, who was just famous for coaching some of the best running backs ever from at USC from Mm-hmm. O.J. Simpson and Charles White and Marcus Allen to the Rams with Eric Dickerson. He once told me the key to every one common factor among all of the great running backs that he coached was that they never took severe hits. They mm-hmm. always fell forward. Somehow they always just slid off and they never took those violent head on hits. Whereas a running back like, say, Earl Campbell, that's where he made his bread and butter, you know, or Jim Brown running people over uh, like that. What I'm hearing you say is that can be trained in a way, you know. It really can, yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, That's it, fascinating. It's amazing. It, it is absolutely amazing. And to be honest, one of the conversations we had with you a long time ago um, kind of gave us the insight that, you know, as I guess I have to say as academics, Tom and I will, will say, hey, we have the answer. Why don't you just do it? And, uh, you know, very, oh, very classic diplomatic strategy. And uh, um, one of the things that, that it was interesting, a couple things came together. There's conversations with you guys. And, uh, and also, uh, uh, we were doing, at the same time, my lab was doing a project where we were trying to get a product through the FDA. We're trying to get clinicians on board. And rather than say, look, this is better than what you do now, we said, we finally figured out to say that, look, this works better and you can make more money doing it because you can do it faster and easier yeah. and, and, they, and the patients recover sooner. And so you actually, you know, you, be, you become- You benefit, yeah. You benefit. And so one of the things that we've been trying to push lately is this idea of creating coaching tools that will help the coaches teach the game better, right? Because you can mm -hmm. have people uh, like John who can teach it, but most of the high school coaches that we run into, uh, I, I want to say it a little delicately, but they don't have that experience. They're not mm -hmm. natural teachers. They, they might be motivators, right? There's, there's a difference between teaching and motivating, and the great coaches seem to be able to do both. Uh, but creating these tools, whether they're video-based or sensor-based, we know how to do that now. And again, it's one of these things where a, a small investment and we, we, can, we can make these things a reality. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, Cincinnati was open to talking about getting the data. And if we can prove it out, comfortable that they'll take it seriously, right? So that, that's one of the really neat things here. But definitely getting the coaches on board by making their lives easier, making it easier for them to teach how the linemen should engage how the running backs should be aware of what's going on so they don't take a bunch of hits. I think about like, you know, Sydney now as a professional rugby player, which is a, you know, extremely Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll just use the word violent, even though my little mama heart just, <laughs> I hate that. But anyway, but just the way that they teach, not just tackling, it's not just tackling. It's the way you move around the field. It's the way you interact with other players. It's the way you watch other players' body parts and where they are. Mm -hmm. And just our son's brain is made that way. It just He's going on all these different levels at once. He's able to see all these different things going on at once. And that's part of what makes him a good rugby player, even though he's not the hugest human being <laughs> on the planet. But I mean, that's kind of what you're talking about is like a mindfulness of what your body's doing, what other bodies are doing and how to you know, play the game with the least amount of, of harm. Mm -hmm. Like I know, what is it, John, that they say in rugby that the tackler is responsible for the well-being of the person being tackled. It's a very totally different, different mentality. 
Yeah. You can tell it's not an American sport. <laughs> so. You know, but, but Marcia, that, that whole statement of athletic mindfulness, I mean, I really like that because that's really what it comes down to and what we're seeing. And I think, and then combined with that, exactly what you said, if you can go to the coach and say, this is going to make it easier for you to teach. But on top of that, you're going to have these guys available. You, you know, if, if, if they can go to coach Luke Fickle and say, Hey, Jerome Ford's going to be available all season. Desmond Ritter's right. going to be available all season. Luke Fickle's going to sit there and say, well, I don't know that I believe that what you're saying or that I really think this is a real issue, but if it turns out that I'm going to have those guys for a 14 game season, I'm all in. And then they become believers, but the number one ability is availability. <laughs> when I coached in the NFL, I truly did. I said at the beginning of the year to our starting quarterback, I said, our number one goal is for you to start 16 games. Yeah. That's our number one goal. If, if your starting quarterback starts every game in the NFL, you've, you've got a chance, you know, to, mm-hmm. you know, if it's, Hall of Famer, you got a really good chance. But if it's your starter, you got a chance. You know, you helped me shift my thinking to on Wednesday or on Thursday. You know, you could tell, you could measure with numbers, perhaps, is a is a person getting close to this threshold? And we talked about accelerometers that were put on the backs of necks of players or their sensors that are put in different places, helmet, even mouthpieces you mentioned at one point. But there is a way to measure the hits that or the head accelerations mm-hmm. that a athlete is having during the week and as i understand it you said to me you could tell if a person is approaching that threshold and be able to say to a coach you know he's approaching this threshold on thursday if you want him to play on saturday you may want to back off on the hitting just as we would do with a wide receiver who maybe had a tight hamstring a trainer would come out to me and say hey uh, such and such as hamstrings tight, no deep routes for him here. And if you want him on Saturday, you could do the same thing as a brain is. And, and I think of it as that frog in the water is kind of heating up as the brain is approaching that threshold. But here's, here's where the issue is, is I think sometimes to see if that brain is approaching, you need to have a preseason measurement. Am I right? Of where a person's brain is, uh, uh, what's that called? A baseline, so to speak. And so, if if Shoop's baseline is ten and he's getting up to forty, we need to be worried. But if Shoop's baseline is thirty and he's at forty, what the whoop? It seems to me that COVID has kind of brought this out in coaches as well. And we're seeing it even now in the NFL. We don't want to test. We don't want, or I shouldn't say we, coaches don't want to test because they're afraid what they might find out. If if we test these players, then there's a chance they have COVID and son of a gun, they're out. So if we just don't test them, we can all pretend there's nothing there. I have experienced that with regards to, this baseline for concussive studies. Well, hey, it's an invisible disease. Dementia is in some ways. CTE is in some ways. Let's keep it invisible and only worry about it if we have to worry about it. 
Whereas you guys are on the front edge, the front edge of this worry about it, not just for Saturday. I I can help you get players available for Saturday, for Sunday, for Monday night, but I can also help these players when they're 35, 38 years old, Vincent Jackson, who died was 38 years old. That's not old, you know? And so there's a long-term effect as well. So could you talk a little bit about that baseline? Yeah. So, so the big thing from the baseline perspective is particularly here at the beginning where we're trying to track down how do these exposures to head impacts or head acceleration events produce the pathophysiologic changes. They produce bad things in the brain. Yeah, we desperately need these baselines because otherwise, if we're, like you just said, John, if we're looking at the, the, the kid halfway through the season and he's shown a 40, and I don't know if he was a 30 or a 10 before the season, then I don't know if what I'm seeing is wrong or is just the way that kid's wired. And so getting those baselines is absolutely vital. Now, Again, the advantage here is because you have here, we have research clinicians, clinicians who are engaged in research, taking care of the athletes. They have built in essentially part of our treatment for these athletes involves us continuing to explore new methods to keep them healthier, to make them available more and to reduce the long-term costs to the healthcare activities for the the athletics department. So they have the support and they can go do it. Now, yeah, they'll have a coach come in and say, we don't want to do it. And they'll be like, okay. But they also all know that by and large, what they've been doing has been very positive and there'll be negative consequences. And at the end, they'll be able to go back and say, thank you. You proved our point. You gave me my control. (laughs) Let's go do it. Um, That's a big change, having athletic research, athletic clinicians, the healthcare team being involved in the research and actually having historically driven the research. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Going Deep, sports in the 21st century here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Welcome back to Going Deep on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Our guests today are Tom Talavich and Eric Nauman, formerly at Purdue University and now at the University of Cincinnati. Y'all are hitting on some really important pieces of this, and I, and I just wanted to give a shout out because, you know, Buddy Tevens basically proved that when you go to these no-contact practices, your team stays much, much healthier. And he's got players available, and that, and that's a that's a huge advantage for him at Dartmouth. He was just named Coach of the Year for two years in a row, and they've I think won three of the last four uh, Ivy League championships. And and they're doing it in a great way. You know, they're just a phenomenal program. And that is one of those things. You know, we talked at the very beginning about you know this this feeling of helplessness and frustration. You then talk to people like Buddy, and you think, okay, this you know. This can definitely be done. But one of the other things that we've been doing and one of the reasons why, you know, from my perspective, I think the last few years has really convinced me that this is a solvable problem is that we've been working with one of our collaborators at Penn State, Sam Slobanov, and one at Northwestern, Hans Breiter, to try to figure out, can, can we get basically you know, 80% of the information that comes out of an MRI, can we get that out of a blood test? And it's starting to look like that's possible. In fact, I 
think it's looking very good um, that we can start to understand what's going on by analyzing the blood, which essentially makes it a, a much more, how do you say it? Like uh, manageable, manageable, accessible, all those kind of things that, that probably more affordable too, isn't it? I mean, absolutely. that's very less expensive for absolutely. somebody. <laughs> yeah. No, and that's exactly right. And so you start to see how, um, looking at the data, you know, being willing to look at the data, because I mean, you're exactly right. They, I don't know, I don't know when it started or where it came from, but the idea of like, let's just not look at the data and then there's no problem. That is, that is insane. And I think it started with the creation of human beings. That, is <laughs> so, that, is that, that little denial muscle twitch has been in there for a while, I think. I mean, and part of what I'm hearing and what you're saying, Eric, is also just the more there is a culture of collaboration and trust and yes, let's try that. Then people, whatever it is that their metric is for I'm going to do this, they find their way to connect to it. And I think that's a, that's a lot like church work, you know, not everybody doesn't come in the door for the same reason, but if they can find a way to connect and believe in it, mm-hmm. then it really has traction in their life and it makes changes. But everybody doesn't get convinced by the same thing. Football is a tough, it's a tough atmosphere because it's built largely on anxiety and fear of of being fired, of being cut. Right. There's, there's not a lot of trust. There's not a lot of, um, yes, anding in football. It's more my way or the highway kind of thing. I mean, that's one of the reasons John and I just really support your work so much is because it feels like it's an opportunity for coaches to really take a deep breath and just kind of honor the relationships and what's at stake for them in football. So, I mean, I'm so glad you all are in a place where you feel like there's openings. And I wonder if you can comment, are there any other openings or signs of hope that you see around head injury prevention or just around the way people are thinking about this that that have social capital or power or formal power in the football world? There's at least a little hope in the sense that there are a couple of folks out there who are doing, you know, the right kind of work, asking the right kind of questions, who are now moving into positions where they may have some influence or at least some ability to do it. A colleague of ours, Charlene Newman, runs a center down at Alabama. Um, You know, she might be able to do something in the future. I'm not sure. She's had an interest in this for a long time. So there are bits and pieces, you know, but it's been a long, slow process. And instead, the majority of the experiences are much like what uh, we and and John experienced, you know, several years ago when you try to do a, a study that really is starting to address the critical issue of what happens. Okay, let's go monitor the forces. Let's go see what happens when we change a game time strategy or a practice strategy and let's observe the 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 changes that do or now don't occur over the course of a season in the brain uh, changes in the brain that don't do or don't occur over the course of a season and see is this new strategy better does this new strategy help because if the new strategy helps let's move it forward and get it out there and you know you can get a lot of buy-in 
you know, even theoretically from coaches, well, in John's case, we had the buy-in from the coach, obviously, but, you know, <laughs> even, even from a school, but eventually there's somebody right now who's out there panicking that right. if this changes, then somebody's going to come back and sue us for everything that occurred before this was done or before this change. Is that, that, that issue you raised of that kind of, I'd rather not know the data and so unless you can get something overcome in that regard, it's hard. Well, as you say, the other thing that was encouraging for us is uh, we always had a really nice relationship with the high schools mm. and the high schools were very, uh, very willing to participate. And especially when, you know, they started to see their participation go down, um, mm-hmm. they, they wanted to make changes to make their schools safe. And to be honest, if we can, if we can do stuff at the high school level and below, that's 90 some percent of, of all of the football activity that occurs. Right. So if we can, if we can make it inroads there, that would be tremendous. And that's where a lot of these coaching tools that we're trying to develop are meant to reside. We want them to be cost effective, easy to use and, um, and kind of cool. You're right. Like, just like, here's your data. Here's what you did today. And, uh, and that, that I think is, is quite doable. I'm coach cross country and track here in the same high school where John works and our daughter is a runner. And I'm telling you, athletes eat up data. They love it. I mean, all the runners are like my VO2 max and my this and my that, and I'm putting it on this thing and that. And I mean, I'm just like, I think you should just run intervals and, <laughs> and you'll get faster. I don't have data, but I know you will. That, that's a great point though, Marcia, that the, the athletes are, are now used to having data. They're used to having numbers. It's on their phone. They see it. They want it. Yeah, they, they want it. Yet you now still have, like we ran into this uh, in the past where you have athletic trainers or staff who are afraid to get data. Mm-hmm. They don't want to get the data. Like, oh, well, if we get the data, the players are going to want even more. And so the answer is no, you can't go get those data. We ran into that when we were trying to put something together with baseball back at Purdue. And, and yet here, when we mentioned possibly wanting, we'd love to work with the baseball team. We're interested in some issues with regard to pitching and the like. They athletic, the, the athletic training and the medical staff are like, yeah, they'd love to get that. You know, players are going to have it. Let's go do it. In the summer of 2018, Tom Talavage, Eric Nauman, and I, along with Dr. Pa- Paul Auerbach of Stanford University, uh, I thought kind of formed a pretty formidable team. And what our our goal was, we were going to use the A.C. Reynolds High School football team. And uh, we were going to, uh, I think we were only going to use 30 players on the team. And we were going to fit, w- well, we were going to choose those 30 players. And they were all going to have an MRI on their brain at the beginning of the season, one in the middle of the season, and one at the end of the season. So we could kind of track it. We had it all set up. We had the MRIs all organized. Uh, I believe Purdue was sending. We had an apartment for your grad student that was coming on down. And uh, we were going to fit each of those players with a head accelerometer on the back of their neck. And so every single day in practice, we were going to have that baseline and we were going to try to measure 
whether guys head accelerations were getting close to the threshold and how we could back it down or move, you know, what we could do in practice when we could heat it up in practice or when we could cool it down. And, uh, it was on, on a Monday in August, we were set to start uh, the MRIs. We had an entire weekend, Saturday and Sunday, the MRI station, open MRI here in Asheville was closed to everybody else and just open for us. And we were going to send players in at different slots. In the Friday before that Monday, well, the powers that be called me. We were on vacation at uh, uh, Sunset Beach and said, uh, we're not going to move forward with this project. Now, remember how heartbroken I was having to call you guys. But, Tom, if I remember, you weren't surprised at all. And I was absolutely shocked because I'd gotten the OK from our principal. I'd gotten the OK from our head coach, from our athletic director. Everybody was excited about this. I thought this was going to be a great advantage for our team. Additionally, we were a good football team. I do think there's some importance in doing it with a team that's good. Mm -hmm. So other teams will kind of follow along. Uh, but it was the county that called uh, about three days before, well, the Friday before Monday and said, we're not going to go through with it. We think we're too, what, what was the word? It, it was too risky. The doctor for the state, North Carolina High School Athletic Association, reviewed all of our stuff and okayed it. He was also the team doctor at the University of North Carolina. It was uh, Buncombe County uh, that kiboshed it out of, let's call it what it was, fear. What you got me thinking about today was... Why go to the school? Perhaps you just go to parents and players. Those 30 individual players, if I just went to them and never talked to the school and wasn't associated with the school, and they wanted to buy 30 accelerometers and put them on the back of their neck and be a part of this program, and we were to do it, the school wouldn't be able to say one thing or another. These 30 students are, are just doing it. From what I'm hearing Marsha saying is that I see my daughter, this cross-country athletes are looking at all their stuff, everything that they do on their phone every second of the day. Heck, it doesn't have anything to do with the coach, the school, the and AD, the county. a lot of them have county, private you know? coaches yeah, and things that they work with, too. They're, so. they're doing it themselves. And so my wheels are spinning right now. If we were to ever pick this up again, mm -hmm. why even mention it to the well, especially because the schools or the athletic director or anyone, the if coaches, a player wants to do it, a coach can't keep a player right. from doing it. And right. the coaches weren't the ones who were keeping the players. From no, doing I, it. I, I want to emphasize that in our situation, our, they our coach, were principal and athletic director were all, they were board. all supportive. Yeah. It was people three, four times removed from the situation that were more about like the legal counsel had not heard about it when that was one of the reasons that they said they were kiboshing it, that person really hadn't been consulted about it. Am I remembering that right, John? You are. They said their lawyers were, had and some he reservations heard about, about it. it. So I called the lawyer. <laughs> I said, what reservations do you have? He says, I don't even know what I you're, talking, what you're about, talking about. John. And I mean, again, I'm, I'm kind of with Tom. I don't think it's that surprising when it, when something keeps ratcheting up, 
higher and higher in the institutional hierarchy and the metric for making decisions is getting thinner and thinner. It's more about liability. It's more about optics. It's more about, you know, worst case scenarios. Often that's when things get shut down. (laughs) Is there anything else that you all feel like our listeners who are deep thinkers around sports and the impact of sports and the cultural kind of iconography of sports, is there anything else around where things are with your research or where things are with the culture of head injuries and prevention that you all want to say? I do have one interesting little, little thing that we've, we started doing. We started to see a lot of these concussions seem to result from the player hitting the ground. Ah. And, uh, and so are him, Teddy Bridgewater, Cameron rising oh. just the other day with just, yeah, the other it day. just happened. Yeah. In the Utah in the game. Bowl. Yep. Yeah. And, and I'm actually seeing, and the chargers player last week or something. So you know, all these situations where people are going to the ground and hitting the ground. And so one of my students, so we actually wrote a book chapter, Tom and I with a couple students, uh, just kind of throwing this idea out there. And then one of my students went and procured, we'll say, uh, all the components that you need for uh, the, the synthetic fields and, uh, and started testing each component by itself and then figuring out what you need to do to make these, these surfaces a little bit nicer when you land. And uh, so there's a paper out in review right now where we talk about all the different components and what they mean to the, to the overall safety. Um, Mm. And now we're, and then we're trying to tie that into the whole idea of, well, the other thing that we worry about with those surfaces is that they often have too much traction. So you tend to get more ACL tears from like non-contact injuries. So what is, again, this just kind of goes back to everything we've been talking about is that there's really no data on the fields, like how, like how it's interesting. And so again, it it looks like we could probably knock this problem out in in a year or two without too much trouble, you know, just by putting the things together and getting some data and seeing how it works. And, um, and it's actually been kind of fun too. They, the students did some really neat work. Yeah, that's really exciting and fascinating. obviously there is one of the big problems that's in this field is getting traction for funding because over a hundred million dollars has now been dedicated to as john kind of opened up with one of these 20-year studies let's just go study it we won't do anything for 20 years let's try to see if we can understand everything before we try to solve any component of it um, the NCAA DOD care consortium has, you know, got another dose of 30 or $40 million recently. And most of the agencies are kind of unwilling to explore these domains because they say, well, they've got a lot of money out there already in this project. And you're in, you know, that will be, I think, an effective study for service members so that they will ultimately understand how, you know, what takes place at the training, at the academies, uh, you know, or in basic type training, um, 
affects their health, but I'm not sure that it's going to solve the problems that were originally on the docket for that research, which was looking at athletes and questions of, uh, you know, what's the equipment, what's the appropriate biomarkers, what are the appropriate ways to do all of this. I mean, you know, one of our big goals here, we, you know, I'm, I'm an imager, right? I use imaging. My goal is to not use imaging. Um, and, and we want to use these other sensors and use these other monitorings. We want the simplest technology that is possible so that that coach can, that player can look and say, yeah, I better take a break or I need this guy to take a break. And, and that's not what's going to come out of those types of studies. So it's, it's a little unfortunate, um, but you know, I do need to acknowledge that that's out there. That is a big study. It will eventually come up with some answers, but in the meantime, we've got a decade plus worth of kids who are going to continue to get hurt, continue to build up injury. And I just don't see a reason we should be waiting. Listening to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. And make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.